morning. How is everybody? Can everybody hear me all the way in the back? Okay. If you have your Bibles with you today, if you would open them to the Gospel of John chapter 14 and verse 21. The Gospel of John chapter 14 and verse 21. This is what God's Word says. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now in these recent weeks, we have been in the midst of an awesome series that Pastor Brooks titled, Christmas is Real. Uh, Real joy, real hope, real peace, and real love, all because a real Jesus came for us, not just to be a part of the scene with the manger and the wise men and the star, but came for a purpose, and that purpose was to live a perfect and sinless and holy life, and when the time was just right, to die on a cross, uh, bloody and public in front of his mom and his best friends, like a common criminal, even though he had done nothing wrong, and he did that for us. Um, That's what Pastor Brooks has unpacked for us in recent weeks, the reason why Christmas is real. Now today, what I want to look at is one verse in the Gospel of John that is our response to Jesus coming and doing what Jesus came and did for us when we needed a Savior. I don't know about y'all, but I was in the mud and the bramble bushes, and I didn't need somebody to tell me about Jesus. I needed Jesus to save me. I want to get that clear right up front. I didn't need intellectual knowledge. I needed somebody to grab me up and pull me out of the mud and give me hope and a purpose. And he did that. But the Gospel of John is is important um, for a lot of reasons, but the purpose of the Gospel of John that John unpacks for us in chapter 20, verse 31, he says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing, you might have life in his name. That's the reason that the Apostle John said that he wrote all the things that he wrote about Jesus' life and ministry, death and resurrection in his gospel. Now, this is the same John who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the Revelation. Uh, This is the brother of James, uh, the son of Zebedee, A fisherman from Galilee. That's the John that we're talking about. And the Gospel of John, you can divide it into five major sections. And the sections go like this. The first is the prologue. That goes from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, The second section is called the Book of Signs. Now, that's just a Bible teacher's way of saying it's the chronicle of seven sign miracles that Jesus would do during the course of his earthly ministry with the purpose of telling us and showing us that he was God. Uh, They point, every single one of those seven, point to his deity because it's only something that God himself could do. And that section goes from chapter 1, verse 19, to the end of chapter 12, which is verse 50. Uh, The third section is what Bible teachers like to call the upper room discourse. Um, That's just a fancy way of saying it's 
Jesus is teaching in the upper room, which is the first or the, the last major teaching time that Jesus would have before he went to the cross. And that teaching time basically goes from chapter 13, verse 1, to the end of chapter 17. Um, the next section would be his passion and resurrection. That's chapters 18, 19, and 20. And last of all is the epilogue. And that's essentially chapter 21. So that's the Gospel of John in a nutshell. So the verses that we are looking at today, 14 verse 21, is in the middle of that third major section, almost to the midpoint of Jesus' major teaching with his disciples. Now in this upper room discourse, Jesus is wanting to do specific things. Um, he starts off in chapter 13 by washing their feet. And he gives them a new commandment at the end of chapter 13. He tells them, as I have loved you, so you're to love one another. Um, also, he wants to prepare them and encourage them for the fact that he's going away. And where he's going, they can't come at the moment. Um, he, he encourages them with that. He wants to let them know that he's not going to leave them, that he's going to come back for them. Uh, he, he makes that clear because, see, this is something that he had been trying to uh, ease the disciples into for a while. Uh, there are several times in the Gospels that he would say, when we go to Jerusalem, the scribes and, and the teachers of the law, they're going to beat me and they're going to kill me and after three days I'm going to rise again. And repeatedly you read in the Gospels that when Jesus said this, it went right over their head. They, they didn't understand what it was that he was telling them. And so he revisits that in chapter 14. Uh, he, he tells them, hey, listen, I'm getting ready to go away and where I'm going you can't come right now. Um, he wants to let them know that not only is he coming back for them, he wants to prepare them for living and ministering in a world that's hostile to them. Uh, he would tell them in chapter 15, verse 18, and following that the world hates me, and just like it hated me, it's going to hate you also. Uh, I don't want that to shock you, but after I go back to my father, the people that you're going to be ministering to and among are going to be hostile, hostile to everything you stand for. And last, he seeks in this upper room discourse to make them aware of new resources. Now, my Bible, the New King James, would say another helper. Uh, some of your translations might say the comforter. Uh, but we know that other helper and the comforter as the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, he tells them that the Holy Spirit... If he goes to the Father, that he'll pray to the Father, and the Father will send another helper that will be with them forever and won't just be with them, he'll be in them. Um, that's important because the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is what enables a person to live the Christian life. It's be just like Jesus to ask us to do something like he asked us to do in verse 21 and give us exactly what we need to do it himself. And the person of the Holy Spirit. Now this verse, I, I want to unpack it now that we know 
where it sits in the Gospel of John and where it is in the flow of thought of the book. Because like Pastor Brooks always says, context is king. Uh, you, you have to know where something is. You can't just cherry pick it out. But this verse is important, and I want to take it phrase by phrase, and then I want to make uh, one essential application. I want to start with just the first phrase. He who has my commandments. Now, you might be thinking, and I was thinking too before I looked into it, well, he must mean the person who has God's word. Um, I have one here. You probably have one in your lap or on your iPhone. Um, having God's Word is not a problem for us in America. Um, many of us have multiple copies at the house uh, that we can look at, uh, multiple versions even, with different covers, some hardback, some paperback, some genuine leather, some not. I mean, the, issue, the, the options are endless for us. But that's not what he's talking about here. When he says, he who has my commandments, it means to, to have or to hold something with a sense of obligation in regard to that. In, uh, in other words, I, I let God's word have sway in my life. That in order to, to have God's word, um, I have to realize the Jesus who came for me is the one who is the author of that. And because my Savior who came for me and died for me when I needed somebody to save me is talking, then... I'm to let his word that I have be in my life in a serious way to influence my choices and my priorities and how I spend my time and how I spend my money and to, to put it in a nutshell, how I live this life because of the one who's talking. That, that's what it means to, to have his commandments. It's not just to have them in your lap or on your iPhone. It's to, to have them in here. Uh, to, to be invested in them personally as an individual. Because how many of you know we don't follow information about Jesus? We follow the person of Jesus. This book, these commandments that we have, this is what testifies to us about who Jesus is that we follow what it is that Jesus requires of us when we live this life. So we don't have to wonder. Jesus knows that I'm not too quick on the uptake. He, he understands that sometimes I need somebody to come right out and tell me what he means. And he does that clearly in his work. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about having his commandments. And then to add to that, the next phrase, and keeps them. The word there means to, to hold, to preserve, undisturbed, to um, not be messed with. And this is not intellectual assent with your head. It's not what we're talking about. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible is a thinking man's book. You're not to check your brain at the door when you study his word. You need your brain. But what I'm talking about here is you observe it in your daily life. You keep it by observing it in practice. In other words, it influences how you live tomorrow, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and every day in between Sundays and including Sundays. 
you observe it in practice. The things that it tells you to do, you do. The things that it tells you stay away from, stay away from it. You know, I don't know about y'all, but I over-intellectualize things a lot. God's Word means what it says. When it says, leave that alone, He's telling you to leave that alone for a reason because He knows what's good for you. And when He tells you to be involved with something, He's telling you to take it into your life, take it into your daily uh, routine, take it into your daily habits because it's good for you. And that, that's what He means when He talks about having the commandments and keeping them. And Jesus is very clear. He tells us in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Uh, 1 John 5 and 3 would tell us, and this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, if you really love me, you're going to do what I say. He would, he would tell the apostles, he would tell them right before he tells the story of the, the wise man who built his house upon the rock and the storm came and the wind and the waves came and beat against the house and it didn't matter because the house was founded on the rock as opposed to the one founded on the sand. He would tell them in the Gospel of Luke, he would say to them, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things which I say? He's just coming at that same thought, that same idea here. Then he says, and he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Aren't you glad that when Jesus came for us, he acted and didn't just talk? It would have been a totally different story. It would have been a totally different earthly ministry if all Jesus did was walk around and talk. But when Jesus was here, he walked around and did things. He made blind people see and lame people walk and deaf people hear and raised Lazarus and the widow of Nain's son from the dead. And by the way, he was graveyard dead when they put him in the tomb. And three days later, he was not because he was alive. And he's alive right now because Jesus did things. I'm glad that my Jesus does things. He doesn't just talk about doing things. And that's what he's talking about here. For God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. God demonstrates with action. And see, Jesus is, is serious. He, he, he acted on our behalf, so he expects us to act on his behalf. To, to, to show him love. He shows me love and he shows me grace day after day after day, and I sin and sin and sin and fall short and fall short and fall short, and so do you. And he still shows us love and grace and mercy. But when do we show him love? When is the shoe going to be on the other foot? Jesus doesn't mince any words. He says, the one who has my commandments and keeps them, it's he who loves me. I want to be a person who loves Jesus. The way that Jesus says my love for him is supposed to look. Not what people in the world say about how his love is supposed to look in my life. Do you? I would submit to you that Jesus is the only one who paid what was necessary to be able to tell me what to do and I would do it. Because all the rest of the people in the world who have an opinion about how I ought to live, they didn't go to Calvary for me. So I don't really care about that in regards to what they say. Sometimes, to be honest, I care a little bit too much. 
about what they think. And I ought not. I ought to care more about what he thinks. Because he went to the cross for me when I didn't deserve it. Not them. He did. And then Jesus says something that that absolutely blows my mind. The next thing out of his mouth, he says, And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. In other words, God the Father is paying attention to how people treat his one and only Son. He's not only paying attention to the words they say, he's paying attention to the things that they do. Because people talk a lot in in church world today. I don't know if you know it or not. People talk a lot in church world about obeying God, don't they? And everybody's got a different definition of what obeying God is. But But the definition of what loving God is that we should strive for is the one that Jesus says that we ought to have. And for him, loving him is obeying him. That's the essence of discipleship. Having and keeping the commands of God because His Word has sway in our lives and we love Him. And then Jesus says it again. I will love Him. And I will manifest myself to Him. In other words, I will lay things about myself open before that person, man, woman, boy, or girl, I will lay them open in plain view. I will bring them right out front for that person to see. I don't know about you, but whatever Jesus has to tell me about himself, I want to know it. I want to know what that is. Whatever he thinks is important enough about himself to show me in relationship, then I want to know what that is. And more than just know it, I want to listen to it when he tells me what that is. The only point of application that I want to make is the one that Jesus makes. Genuine love for Christ requires action. Genuine love for Christ requires action. And that action can be encapsulated in one word, obedience. We can't say that we love him and not obey him. If we say that we love him and we don't obey him, we are lying. And we're making everything that he did on the cross something less than it ought to be in our lives. And that's not good. Because when he comes again, make no mistake, when he comes again, He's not coming as a suffering servant. He's coming as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and all opposition to him will cease when he comes on the scene. Second Thessalonians says that he will slay his enemies with the brightness of his coming. And every eye will see him, even those who pierce them. And he'll be the focus from then on. And see, when he comes in judgment, it, it's going to be very, very hard for some folks. Because those folks who know him in the biblical sense of the word, that they have a relationship with Jesus, those folks are going to be on one side. And the people who don't are going to be on the other. 
And see, this verse that we're talking about is what makes the division between those two groups of people at the second coming of Jesus. Because the people who love him in relationship are the people who are going to do what he says. And the people who don't, don't. Now, the most common word for disciple in the New Testament means learner. One who comes to be taught, to be instructed. Why would the word for disciple be learner? Because in order to keep the commands of God, you have to know what they are. You have to spend time with him daily in relationship. You have to take this book from your coffee table and your car and your desk to here. You have to take it inside yourself. You have to do what Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 says. You have to let the word of God dwell in you richly. You have to take a lesson from Psalms chapter 1. You have to meditate on God's word. You have to think about it. You have to chew on it. But why are you thinking? And why are you letting it dwell in you richly? So that you can take the critical step of obedience. You're not content just to fill your head with knowledge about Jesus. You want to know Jesus and you want to follow Jesus. And to do that, you have to obey. And you see all the things that we have at our disposal, God's word and prayer and accountability and fellowship and service, worship which is why we're all here. We're not here to kill time before we go eat. We're here to worship Jesus because he's worthy of worship. And you see, all these things that I just rattled off to you, all these things are a means to one end. And that one end is to know Jesus and be like Jesus so we can obey Jesus. Because there are lots of theology books and lots of things that, at my house that tell me things about God's Word, but there is no substitute for God's Word itself. I don't need to know what Wayne Grudem says about the Gospel of John, even though Wayne is very smart. I need to read this for myself. Because this will let me know who Jesus is more and more and more and more. And you see, the more I know him, the more I love him. And the more I love him, the more I want to obey him. And the more I obey him, the more I want to know him and love him some more. And it just keeps going and going and going and going. So much so that the greatest missionary that this world ever saw, the Apostle Paul, he says in Philippians chapter 3, he says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, so that by any means I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul was a Pharisee. He had the first five books of the Old Testament word for word in his head, and he could recite it. But even he said that I want to know him. That's the thrust of my life. That's what keeps me going. That is 
the, the firewood that stokes the fire on the inside of me that I might know Jesus and that I would know him more today than I did yesterday. And next week I would know him more than I do this afternoon. That's the hunger that I have. So that when I see him again, when he comes again, that's not something that I should be scared of. That's something that I can be anticipating and waiting for and longing for because I know him, I love him, and I obey him. And by his own criteria, I'm good. Because if Jesus is the one who's calling the shots, and he is, if he says this is what love for him looks like, that's the kind of love for him I want to demonstrate. What he says it is. How about you? And you see, discipleship is not a class. Discipleship is not a course that you take and you do things for for a while and then you stop. Discipleship is not something that you can do and be done until you get ready to do it again. Discipleship is a lifestyle that you would have the commands of God, keep the commands of God, be in relationship with God always, and that you would spend your life pouring what you know of Jesus into other people, and they would do the same for you. That's discipleship. That's what the Lord means when he says, go into all the world and make disciples. And see, we have the honor and the privilege to be a part of what he's doing in the world. Not just in Cuba and the Philippines, but everywhere that we work, everywhere that we go on vacation, everywhere that we are is an opportunity to be a disciple. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to just be a church attender, and, and even yet, m more than that, a church participator. I want to be a Jesus follower. I want to be somebody who loves them with every fiber of my being, and people don't have to wait for me to open my mouth to know that that's true. They can look at my life and tell. And then they're more convinced when I open my mouth. And don't get me wrong, there's time for words. Sometimes you just have to open your mouth and say something. But that should be the thrust of what we're doing. Anything less than that is not what Jesus intended. And I know that's not popular in church culture, but I'm telling you the truth. That's what has to happen. To be right with God, you have to be a disciple. And to be a disciple, you have to love him and obey him. Anything less than that, you're not a disciple. And it doesn't mean that we don't sin, because we sin every day. Thank the Lord we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that we can confess our sin to him and he will cleanse it and we can start again. That's good news. But you see, it only came that opportunity for us in relationship with grace and forgiveness and all the things that we love and that we depend on every day. It only came because of Calvary. 
Without that, it's an impossibility for us. Without that, we're done. The whole lot of us is done. And see, it should be in the forefront of our minds and it should be in the forefronts of our hearts to the point where we can't do anything without being cognizant of that. That's what he's after. Because if that's so, that Jesus will so invade our routine that, that, that he infiltrates our thoughts and he infiltrates the way that we talk and he infiltrates everything about us, then we're moving in the right direction. And, and that, that's what sanctification is. Becoming more and more every day what you already are. If you're saved and you have a relationship with Christ in the sound of my voice, you're as saved as you're going to get. But you can look more and more like Jesus every day. That's what sanctification is. It just means progressive holiness. Holiness more and more as time goes by. And that's what our lives are to be about. And see, it happens in the context of discipleship. Because when Jason pours his life into me and I pour my life into Jason and we, we spend time and we talk really about what's really going on, then Jason learns from me and I learn from Jason and we both grow. And see, that, that's essentially what discipleship is. I don't come to discipleship thinking that I know everything. If I come to discipleship thinking that I know everything, then I miss the point altogether. You come to discipleship knowing that you need to learn. And as we, as we learn and as we grow and as we're real with people and we do life with people, see, we look more and more like Jesus, and that's the point. Because the world needs to see it. They are just dying every single day, about hundreds and thousands from everything, from opiates to heroin to alcohol, you name it. They are checking out. And it ought to matter to us. It ought to matter to us enough to show them something different. And if it doesn't, then it's time for us to do a heart checkup. That's what invitation time is right now, like right here in God's house. Not later, now. You have to ask yourself, am I loving Jesus this way or, or is the way I love Jesus not this? And if it doesn't line up with what God's word says, see, you have an opportunity because you're not dead yet. You can come to know Christ if you don't. And if you do know Christ, you can get real serious about following him. Because if you don't, and you know that you know that you know Jesus, and if you don't get serious about following him, not because I told you to, I'm nobody, I'm just somebody he's been good to but we're talking about what he said to us now. If you get serious about following him, then he gets glory from your life. And we want our lives to have maximum impact for the cause of Christ. Because being a Christian costs in this world. How many of you know that? If you're going to be a Christian, it's going to cost you. Well, while you're paying, you might as well give Jesus as much glory as you can on your way through. Otherwise, what are we doing here? I got too much invested to do it halfway. I don't know about y'all. So be encouraged. 
Because if you know that something's not quite right, you need to do business with God today before you leave. And if you know that you don't know Jesus, well, you can. You can. All you have to do is say, Lord, I have messed up. I need somebody to save me. I need you to invade my reality. I need you to save me and, and be first for me and be, be number one for me and call the shots in my life because we all know where calling the shots in my life has gotten me up to this point. I'm a wreck. I'm a mess. I need you. Jesus will meet you where you're at. He'll change everything. But if you're sitting here and you're saying, well, Candace, I know Jesus and I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Well, then my, my word of encouragement to you is keep doing it. Don't take your foot off the gas at all. Keep doing it. Because it might not seem that it makes all that much difference and it might not seem that it matters and it might not seem that anybody cares. But they do. People take encouragement from Christians that are standing up and being legit, doing what they're supposed to do when they're supposed to do it, and opening their mouth when they're supposed to, and having the godly habits that God says we ought to have. It matters to people who are watching you who might or might not talk to you. So please, while the world's watching, show them something. Let them see something while they're watching you, because they're checking you out. Whether or not they talk to you or not, they're checking out if what you say and what you do matches up. So be wide open with it. Go as hard as you can after him because he's worth it. He's the only thing, period, that's worth giving your life to. And you know because he's told you ahead of time that it'll pay off. There's an eternity waiting on you when you get home to be with him. And it's such a cool place that the things that people kill themselves for down here like gold, it's pavement. That's what kind of place it is. Gold is in the dump truck in heaven. Paving streets with it. Think about it. The things that people spend 90, 100 hours, 120 hours in a week working for it's pavement in heaven. So what kind of place must that be? Where Jesus is the focus of that place. He's the light that lights that place up. He is the center and only attraction in that place. Everything that happens in that place is happening for him. He's the Lord of that place. And when we get there, we'll be his servants and he'll be our God and we'll serve him there. That's our hope. Just as sure as I'm standing on the platform and just as sure as you're sitting in green cushion chairs. That's what's going to happen when we leave this world. But until then, we have a life to live and a Jesus to put on display. And we don't need to be wasting time because every day is an opportunity. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the fact that we get to be in your house today. Uh, we love you so much. We thank you for who you are, for what you've done. Um, at, the, at the cost of yourself, we praise you for that. 
Father, we ask that you be glorified in our, in our time today, that you be happy with what you hear and see. Uh, we ask that you would uh, speak to hearts, Lord. Those who know you, those who don't, that you would speak to them, that you would tell them exactly what they need to do and that you would give them courage so they can do it. And we thank you and we love you and we praise you because there's nobody like you. You're the only God there is. And we give you honor in this place and we just tell you that we appreciate so much what it cost you to do what you did for us. And it's not for nothing. And we praise you for it and we thank you and we ask for your help so that we, we could live in a way that would honor you in this world. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.